is an Odyssey original. This is KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. Television has played an important role in our consumption of news for the past 60 years or so. Both TV and radio have allowed people to get real-time images and audio of breaking news events. But is television news, both locally and nationally, in trouble? It might be. CNN laying off a large part of its staff. We're now just hearing about the departures at NBC4 here in Los Angeles of longtime news anchors. So we are going to go in depth into the future, if there is one, of television news. President Biden once said COVID is a pandemic now of the unvaccinated. But that doesn't seem to be true today, we'll explain. And we look into the prisoner exchange that's sending basketball star Brittany Griner home, finally, from Russia. If you can't get enough gossip and stories about the royal family, you're probably going to be watching the new Harry and Meghan documentary series. We'll go in-depth on how people in the U.K. are reacting. And if there's another side of the story, they're not telling us. Is tipping getting out of hand? We're going to look into how more and more workers are asking for tips at places you really would not expect. Yeah, when you asked before for a tip, I thought that was going too far. I believe I should be tipped for opening the door for you to come into the studio. Ah, okay. Well, we'll have to discuss this later. We start with television news, and is it on the decline? With us is retired CBS2 KCAL 9 reporter Dave Lopez. He's out with his new book, It's a Great Life If You Don't Weaken, Family Faith in 48 Years on Television. Dave, thanks for being with us. So my first question to you is, Could somebody starting today in television news be there for 48 years? I I doubt it. I doubt it very much. First of all, thank you very much for allowing uh, me to throw in my two cents worth on this. I, um, you know, if you count when I started in this business as a newspaper reporter, uh, I worked in uh, television news and radio since 1964, uh, the heyday. I mean, I, I saw some, some great reporters worked alongside great reporters, uh, saw when it was in its golden era. Uh, those days are gone. Uh, I, I don't think any reporter today starting out is going to last uh, 25 years, much less 48. You know, broadcast news has undergone a lot of evolution, uh, some of it even in our lifetimes. But uh, we recall, of course, the golden days of, of you know, you had the three major networks. You had the three uh, national anchors. And before that, there weren't even three. And uh, then news began to explode. We got into cable. And, of course, you know, radio news has been going on since the founding of radio. Uh, but are we looking at a possibility of an evolution that might evolve the uh, TV and the the radio news anchor and reporter out of existence in favor of some kind of social mediaized uh, kind of news reporting? Well, there's there's no doubt about that. I mean, th- that was the biggest change that I saw. I mean, you got to remember when I started, we had uh, two man crews all the time. In fact, I started with film. You know, you do it on film, and then you go to the film house, and then get it. Uh, developed and then you get it on the air the instantaneousness of the news wasn't what it is today now but no there's no question about that there are so many ways people can get their uh their news i mean i write about this in my book extensively uh that uh you know the the changes is it good i don't think so um you know uh the the people that are being let go or gone going from channel four have been there for a long long time channel two went through the same thing uh, other stations, I'm told through people that I still have contact with in the business, uh, every everybody that works in the media in Los Angeles is literally shaking in the boots now. It's just how extensive are these cuts going to be? 
Um, there's no question that the new era is younger, cheaper, is better in the eyes of management. And I think it has a lot to do with no question about it. You take away the Internet, Instagram, Facebook, uh, whatever else they have, uh, streaming. Uh, none of this would have happened if that had not become so popular and prevalent. The, the attention span today of the viewers uh, is uh, minuscule. Well, you know, the interesting thing here, Dave, too, is is and I think also to Rob's point a little bit earlier about you know social media and there are more eyes now on, on news, you know, citizen journalism, so to speak. And I remember there's a, a Don Hewitt, who I'm sure you remember as being the creator of 60 Minutes on CBS. He once was famously asked if he believes in citizen journalism, journalists, and his response was, yes, the same way I believe in citizen neurosurgeons. It's an art, Charles. I mean, you know, you and I and, and have been in this business a very long time. And, you know, I, I, I used to get a kick out of people that would come to me on the street and it'd say, uh, you know, it, it looks like it's easy to uh, do what you do. So I'd literally hand them the mic and say, OK, fine, go ahead. Here's the story I'm doing. You do it. Yeah. I, I mean, it's an art. I, I mean, it, it takes time. And, and what I think is happening today and the one thing that management doesn't realize is when they're when they're leaving, letting all these veteran people go and they're all good solid journalists they've been there for a long long time who are they replacing them with a couple of kids that come out of college somebody that works in Poughkeepsie Illinois for a couple of days uh, you know Grand Junction Colorado and they come to Los Angeles and they think they know how to work this it it, it doesn't happen it just does not happen I mean I, I I would not want you know it's almost to the point where if you're going to have surgery I, I don't want the surgeon operating on me who was last in his class <laughs> <laughs> I, I know that feeling, yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, thank you. Uh, that is uh, retired CBS2 KKL9 uh, reporter Dave Lopez. By the way, check out his book. It's a Great Life If You Don't Weaken, Family, Faith, and 48 Years on Television. Yes, and, uh, and talk about good reporters, Dave, certainly that. Coming up, the first episodes of the Harry and Meghan documentary series have dropped on Netflix. We'll look into the criticisms they have of the royal family. And should you tip a Starbucks cashier? We'll talk about how more and more service workers are asking for tips. Right now, though, remember when President Biden said this? This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Well, the president made that remark in September 2021. Let's move forward to today, and those most at risk from COVID are seniors, even though the vast majority are vaccinated. A recent New York Times op-ed says Americans 65 and over account for 90% of new COVID deaths. With us is Dr. Julie Swan, head of the Department of Industrial and Systems Engineering at North Carolina State University, She's worked with the likes of the CDC and Red Cross in medication and other areas. Thank you, doctor, for joining us. Um, so what of that? Uh, is the New York Times piece correct that uh, the vast majority of deaths now from COVID are senior citizens, but senior citizens nonetheless who are vaccinated? Well, at a broad level, yes, it is correct. Uh, that most of the deaths are among those who are older, even if they are vaccinated. What's really important is to stay up to date with your vaccinations, because if you got vaccinated when it first came out, that's been over a year, year and a half, and that uh, protection that you have can wane. The unvaccinated are also at risk, but they may have had the disease along the way, so they may have some protection from that. 
Uh, and we do know that that age is a significant factor. So, uh, so are you saying, I just want to be clear on this. Uh, I think what you're saying is that the senior citizens, 65 and older, uh, 60 and older as opposed to, who are dying of COVID now, for the most part, though they may be vaccinated, they are likely not up to date on boosters. Is that basically what you're saying? That is a large portion of them. Now, it is possible that someone can be up to date on boosters and their immune system is just not good enough. Um, and, and, you know, we can't protect ourselves forever. So there are still risks, but you can reduce your risk by making sure that you're up to date on vaccine. You know, we were told uh, a long time ago when uh, COVID first became an issue that uh, looking ahead to the future when we've got vaccines, it's going to be like the flu and you're going to have to get a booster every year. And uh, and even with the flu vaccines, you know, you found vulnerable populations, the elderly still at risk from of dying from the flu or getting seriously ill. And COVID is now following in that sense. That's another way that it's like the flu. So it's it's maybe a reminder for people. Should they take it as a reminder that, hey, COVID is still a danger, even if you're vaccinated, if you've got other issues like like old age. Absolutely. And and you can have compromised immunity as well if you're uh, you've got cancer and your body is really fighting that or receiving treatment for that. So there are some other people at risk. Uh, and that's important to think about, just as there are for influenza. And that is also contributing to the current level of hospitalizations and deaths in the U.S., so you probably heard the soundbite we played in the intro to you. That was of uh, President Biden back in uh, September of 2021 when he said it was a uh, pandemic now of the unvaccinated. If you were to write his speech today, what would he say? Oh, great one. And, and anything you say in the news can come back to bite you in six <laughs> months, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, what I would say is that pandemics are dynamic and they can change. So what is true today may be different a year from now. But today, those who are at greatest risk include people who are not up to date on their vaccine and people with compromised immunity due to illness or age. Would you say during winter surges, when uh, COVID spreading a little bit more than it usually does, that uh, elderly people m- should maybe think about not attending too many uh, crowded parties or maybe wearing masks and taking other precautions? <coughs> Excuse me. It's a great point. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't have COVID. I, are, are, I hope you don't have COVID. <laughs> No, no, no. I just got something fun in my throat. So what is true is that lots of respiratory viruses are more likely to spread in the United States in the winter months. It's also made worse by things like gatherings during the holidays and, and, you know, getting together with friends and family, which is so important, but you can bring viruses into new environments. So I think all of us need to balance our own personal risks, but also with the things that we need to do to keep us uh, happy in life, which might include social gatherings, but we should be aware of it and careful. All right, Dr. Julie Swan, thank you so much for joining us, head of the Department of Industrial and Systems Engineering at North Carolina State University. It's worked with the CDC and the Red Cross. Coming up, the royal family and racism discussed in the new Harry and Meghan documentary episodes that just dropped on Netflix. We'll get a reaction from the U.K. And should we now start tipping the person who gives us a scoop of ice cream or a soda at the amusement park or stadium? We'll talk about what's called 
tipflation. Mm-hmm. Right now, though, WNBA star Brittany Griner headed back to the U.S., just freed from prison in Russia as part of a prisoner exchange. Russia will get back infamous arms dealer Victor Boot. With us to talk about that is Juscelino Coloris, co-director of the Frederick Cox International Law Center at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. One of the first things I was struck by is this immediate reaction from uh, some across the uh, the other side of the political divide from uh, President Biden when they announced that uh, Brittany Griner's face was like, oh, so we're leaving Paul Whelan there uh, forever as if, you know, maybe deals weren't still being made for Paul. But why do you think the United States only took the deal for Brittany Griner right now. Was the U.S. kind of forced into this? Of course, the 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 way these negotiations happen typically is uh, you get what the I mean you can only come to a deal if if two sides can agree on the final price for wh- whoever gets what. And in this case, you have on one hand a Brittany Griner, a two-time U.S. Olympian. Uh, serving a nine-year prison sentence for less than a one gram of hashishi oil, and uh, the price that the Russians were willing uh, to give her up for was uh, Victor Bo- Bout, uh, Boot, uh, and uh, he's a convicted arms dealer. Of course, there's going to be, uh, there may be, uh, there are, there's a lot that we don't know that we should not know because the government, uh, the best way to to do these deals is secretly uh, without the and away from the public. Uh, uh, from the public, but uh, it, it's still upsetting that while we celebrate the freeing of a fellow American, we have uh, 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 we have to be troubled that a U.S. Marine has been in prison there since 2018, and that uh, two administrations have haven't yet been able to bring him back. Well, and and does this not send a signal to other countries that? You can, uh, you know, basically, you know, swipe a a fairly, uh, I don't want to call, uh, you know, Griner non-consequential, but compared to somebody who has been a U.S. Marine, uh, you know, as a, a, a sports figure, to grab somebody like that in exchange for a pretty high level figure, does that not make it easier and open the door to other countries to do this repeatedly now? It does, but again, the 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 fact that one uh, one part of the deal uh, is is a celebrity and uh, uh, is a U.S. athlete at the at the prime of her game uh, uh, weighed against the United States in the sense that uh, the Russians uh, uh, knew that they could extract a higher price uh, for her, and it's 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 uh, you know a, a numbers and cents kind of. Uh, raw calculation that they make on their on their hands that they have on their hands and of course i think the big lesson here is for individual american citizens to know that when they are abroad they're supposed to follow the laws of uh, of the country where they where they are and if they are if they do not they uh, uh i mean it's not often the the, the the often the case that the u.s government is going to spend very scarce resources such as a high-level uh, prisoner like Victor uh, Boat uh, for you, and uh, so I think that the big w- warning should be for everyone, whoever goes abroad, go to Mexico, go to the Caribbean, go where, wherever you want to go, that you should abide by the laws of the country you're visiting, and you cannot take it casually. I'm not saying that this is what Brittany Griner did, but it was in a in a moment of perhaps lack of attention, uh, 
she broke the Rus- uh, right. Russian law. But, but, but let me, but let me, yeah, right? But let me ask you this because we always claim in the U.S. that we don't pay ransom. How is this different? Well, we like to claim that because we don't want to be inviting other countries to do that. So publicly, our uh, uh, message is that we don't do we don't do uh, deals with terrorists. Uh, and I think that that's still U.S. policy. But in this case, you are looking at a a sovereign, uh, you know, country that is a rival, and they had something we wanted back, and um, someone we wanted back. I'm sorry, and uh, they uh, we had someone they wanted back, so the deal was possible. Of course, they had to raise the the price first by unfairly convict, convicting uh, uh, Ms. Greiner to a nine-year uh, prison sentence, which is all, I mean, incredibly harsh for basically having less than one gram of hashishi oil. It's still, you know, in breach of Russian law, and she shouldn't have done that. But uh, she was given a hard uh, sentence, probably for the purpose of increasing, uh, you know, uh, the leverage that the Russians had. I, I don't like to say price, and, I, and I, may, I mean no disrespect for this, but it's just basically a transaction. It's a bargain that two countries are making. So uh, we're making we're doing a deal with with the, the with Russia. It's a sovereign nation. Uh, we're not doing a deal necessarily with a ragtag team right. of freedom fighters somewhere else. But uh, uh, in this case, I think the the, the fact that Ms. Uh, Griner is an athlete on top of her uh, shape and that she's a two time Olympian countered it and helped her a lot. Yeah. The sad thing is that as we celebrate her her being freed. I mean, we still have this U.S. Marine right, you know, right. served honorably. Right. And unfortunately, we're, we're going to have to leave it there because we're running out of yeah. time. We want to thank uh, Juscelino uh, Colares, uh, co-director of the Frederick Cox International Law Center at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. People have been waiting to hear Harry and Meghan's side of the story and why they left the British royal family. Now they're going to be able to. First three episodes of Harry and Meghan's long-awaited documentary series now dropped on Netflix. Well, Harry and Meghan apparently were quite critical of the British media and racism, they say, fueled the coverage of their relationship. With us from London is renowned UK publicist and author Mark Brokowski. Mark, thanks for being with us. Uh, Is this uh, Netflix documentary causing any kind of buzz in the UK? Um, That would be an understatement. Of course, it's causing (laughs) a buzz. Um, And everybody's talking about it. Every commentator from Piers Morgan right the way through to many newspapers. It's been trailed, it's been plugged, and uh, if there's any one winner in this so-called PR war between the uh, the houses of Harry and Meghan and what's left of the royal family, it would be Netflix, um, who have sort of, uh, uh, must have generated a huge amount of new subscribers, um, desperate to see what all the fuss is about. And, you know, they talk about uh, one of the issues uh, they raise is racism. And, of course, that kind of brought home recently. uh, Just had uh, someone, a person of color, asked a lot of inappropriate questions uh, by a member of the royal uh, family. Uh, What do you make of that? Is that playing into this? Is that going to bring more attention to the documentary? Look, this is um, um, these are two houses very much, two young people representing 
uh, a new view of what they think the royal family should be against an institution that is incredibly slow to change. And of course, there are some older um, retainers, uh, for want of a better word, still connected to the royal family, who are, who are pretty old school. And of course, this recent uh, remark um, that was well reported um, is not a good look. It, it doesn't suggest the royal family and will definitely be weaponized uh, by Meghan and Harry, particularly Meghan, who I believe is going to pick up some major ward in America next week around, you know, her stance on racism. Um, the, the, the royal family is in a different place since the death of the Queen, and you've got King Charles now um, trying to make sense of what the royal family is. Uh, the timing of that remark and the timing of this documentary and the very lukewarm a recent tour in Boston of uh, William and Kate um, there's always been a very strong bond uh, with the royal family and uh, uh, you know and America. It's been a very powerful piece of soft power that's been used. Um, but um, I think most people are united in in recognising um, that um, these these changes which Meghan and Harry expect are not going to happen easily. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, you know a lot of disrespect for what they've done. But in America, um, when it plays into their power base, um, clearly there's now a different perspective with the royal family. So it has damaged the royal family uh, is perception in America, um, and uh, that that must be worrying. Well, what's interesting, I think, Mark, and, and, and tell me if this reflects some of the opinion in the UK, I suspect it might, is that, uh, you know, it seems like Harry and Meghan are trying to have it both ways, right? I mean, on the one hand, they have uh, some severe criticism of the royal family and, and are trying to project an image as being modernists and, and, and uh, a couple that are very much looking toward uh, the future uh, as opposed to looking back all the time at the past. But on the other hand, they they are really exploiting, are they not, their positions? Because they really still do have positions, whether they have them officially or not. They will always be part of the royal family. And if it weren't for that, nobody would care about their podcasts. Um, I think in America, she's locally seen as an American princess, you know, mixed race, one that the stuff of Disney fantasies and her image chimes so well with the tenor of the times. And she and, and increasingly Harry, under her tutelage, um, speak to the concerns of our era in the language of, you know, of a, a woke generation, which captures the hearts of young people in America. Um, and I, I think that um, that is the basis of their power. And of course, the, the royal family, you know, need to realize that this is an out and out war. Um, and they are in danger of being outgunned if they don't recognize what that enemy is doing um, and how they want to use certainly um, their heritage as, as an amazing trick to resonate in building what I think is a significant foundation in America. And I know to American audience, this might seem strange, but I think a number of commentators, including me, um, seem to think that, um, you know, Harry, Harry and Meghan, if they grow this foundation, I, I suspect that Meghan Markle has real ambitions in years to come to be the first female president of America. I do believe that is her ambition. Oh, that would be interesting. Do you do you think very quickly? Do you think the sun is setting on the royal family? No, the sun isn't setting on the royal family. The royal family is safe 
many, many challenges over the years. The abdication, um, Diana, um, the modernization that Diana broke, the split, various famous interviews. Um, they have a, a really strong self-preservation. Now, I caveat by saying that was driven very much by the Queen, her example, her hard-working example. She's no longer with us, unfortunately. Um, but next year, there's going to be all the pomp and outrageous ceremony, which this country does best for the coronation of King Charles. And that's going to be a global event, and that's what this country projects. Um, all right. There's still more to come from this documentary, so the war isn't over but I don't think write any obituaries to the British royal family just yet. All right. Thank you so much, uh, London, uh, UK publicist and author Mark Borkowski. You're going to watch it? I am going to watch it. I'm very you interested. And because of, uh, at home, yeah. uh, we're big fans of that Netflix show, The Crown, which mm-hmm. might lead some to ask, what does Netflix have against the royal family? <laughs> well, no doubt you uh, know about inflation. <laughs> well, we also have shrinkflation when companies give you less of something but still charge the same price. And then there's greedflation. Now, that's when companies charge more for products just because they can. And we have a new word to add to that list, tipflation. That's when consumers... That's T-I-P-F-L-A-T-I-O-N. Just want to make sure I have that right. I'm a great speller because I can read it on the screen. <laughs> That's when consumers being encouraged to tip at more and more places where they normally wouldn't before, like maybe, you know, a coffee shop. Amanda Bellarmino is a hospitality professor and expert on consumer behavior and tourism at UNLV. She is a management experience in casinos, hotels, and restaurants. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. So uh, what is uh, marking the rise? What is behind this rise of uh, people wanting to be tipped at more places than we're used to? Uh, thank you so much for having me on today. You know, it's a really interesting phenomena that we're seeing is that um, there's more and more as you said, sort of pressure on consumers to be tipping. But I think it's I think there's a couple of things that are going on. You know, one of the things that we saw that started in the pandemic and has has kind of continued is a decrease in the amount of people that are spending cash. And a lot of these places that we talk about, yogurt shops, coffee shops, those places always had a tip jar where you could put in your change or put in a couple of dollars, especially if you felt that someone had gone above and beyond for something. So I think that with people spending less cash, you know, that that sort of went away. So it's it is a way of of replacing, if you if you want to uh, look at it that way, something that we were doing before. I think another reason is it's really hard to get and keep employees right now. And as we've said with inflation, you know, all the people that are working in these places, everything they're buying is more expensive, too. So it's it's an incentive for employees to be able to stay if they know that there is a possibility that they could get some additional bonuses in the form of tips from their uh, from their consumers. Yeah, but here's the other thing, Amanda, that has changed, and it goes to what you were just saying about uh, the sort of transition from cash to uh, digital currency, and that is that before, you know, let's say you were at a restaurant, you would get a a check, they would leave it on your table, you would uh, pay them, and then the waiter or the wait person would walk away. Uh, you would decide whether you're going to fill in the part that says tip, and then you would go on your way. Now, yes. they, now they come over to the table with the electronic device, and they stand there while you hand them your card, <laughs> and then they hand you the machine, which, of course, has the right. option to tip or not to tip. Same with the fast food place. You go in and you give them the card, 
and up comes a screen that says, you know, it gives you choices. Do you want to give them a 25%, which I think is outrageous, <laughs> 25% tip, 20%. Each. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you put skip, if you click on skip, they kind of stand there staring at you. So it, it, <laughs> it, 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 it's kind of extortion. Well, it, there there is that, but I think we've always, you know, it, it also makes me think about, if you remember, there's a Seinfeld where George puts a dollar in the chip jar when the pizza guy doesn't see him, he takes it out to make <laughs> yeah. sure he sees him at the same time and he thinks he's killing it. So, it, you know, again, it's something that I think we've always had a little bit of that, that social pressure. But yes, I would agree with you. I think it's much, um, I think there's a lot more pressure now. I think that we would all feel a little bit better if, we weren't being presented with these high percentage options. I think that's what's, I think that's also part of what's driving consumer pushback, you know, and, or if you just had a yes or no first, and then you can fill in the amount that that might be better. I mean, I, I don't, I don't have hard numbers to say how successful it's being, but I do know that a lot of people have, have commented on it. I know that there is a lot of, of consumer pushback. And like you said, it, it really depends on what you're getting. I think that that's, that's the other thing is that these, these are employees who are making, um, you know, they're not a server at a restaurant where they're dependent upon those tips for, to equal to minimum wage. They are already making that or more, but it is something that does help them. And, and I mean, I think we've all always looked at it a way like if I go into Starbucks and buy a regular cup of coffee, I'm not going to tip you for pouring coffee. But if I went in and got something where I had, you know, 10 different modifications, then I might be more inclined to tip you because I'm asking for something specific. So I think that um, restaurants are going to need to be more cognizant of that. Like you said, that pressure, that social pressure that they're putting on you. And when the, the other thing too, is I think, we would also like to have more explanation as to how these tips are being distributed. If the person is simply taking my order and someone else is making it and giving it to me, who's getting the tip? Is it the person that's giving me the order? Is it uh, combined amongst everyone? Most places I've worked where we would have kind of those uh, a, a similar style restaurant, it would be shared amongst everyone. And that seems a little bit more fair but again, if it's just that person that's ringing up the order, like you said, that's staring at you, there is some social pressure. So I think that while it can be a nice option for employees and they're and I, I can understand why they're doing it, I don't know if it's going to be if it's going to continue to have to if it's going to continue or if it's going to be successful based upon. Uh, consumer pushback. Well, you can know, I I'm, can I ask yeah. you if you have enjoyed today's uh, interview? I have. And uh, would you like to give us a 20% tip, 25% tip, 30%? What would you like? <laughs> you, you, know what I, you know what I was thinking? I think he's only half kidding, by the way. Uh, half, half. <laughs> but, you know, you know I, I wonder if, if, why doesn't somebody come up uh, with an app uh, on a phone since there's an app for everything? Where if you go into a, like a, a Starbucks type place and you pay them, you, you would go to your app. This would be the customer. And you'd hand right. it to the server and it would say, do you deserve a tip? Yes or no? And then that person would have to end, you know, click yes or no. <laughs> and then the next thing would be, tell us why. And then you'd go through that and then decide, why doesn't somebody come up with that to get back? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think that, I don't know that that's going to be, be that successful, but I just, I think that we just have to look at, it. I mean, I think 
restaurants as an industry need to look at it more to say, you know, how can we make sure that when someone wants to tip, that option is there, but not to make people feel pressured. Because like you said, every yogurt shop, every coffee shop, every every place that you purchase food now has that. And it it is making things more expensive for the consumer. And I think that if restaurants start to see that they're losing money because people just are choosing not to go there because they don't want that pressure, which may happen, then we'll start to see it go away. All right, Amanda Bellarmina, thank you so much for joining us. Hospitality professor and expert on consumer behavior and tourism at UNLV. And I do uh, perhaps think that maybe if the listener uh, enjoyed the way that an anchor or a reporter told a story on KenX, that they could Venmo us a tip. <laughs> really? I mean, okay. yeah, come on. Uh, 20% day. Thank you very much for your uh, consideration. All right. That wait, is wait, good. wait, wait, wait. But what, so wait, so you want only 20%? Well, I want more than that, but you know, you gotta you gotta ask for what the market will bear. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh this has been KNX in depth. Please tip your waiters and waitresses. Uh, we will be back tomorrow 